tired and you're poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. The idea of denying outsiders based upon their likelihood of success in America is an enforcement that predates immigration law itself. It's the question of, are you likely to be a burden on society or not? In history, the faces and nationalities of who America deemed capable of carrying their weight has changed throughout time. So today we take a historical approach to the idea and welcome history professor Hidetaka Hirata from Wasada University in Tokyo, Japan. We discuss how culture, religion, and race have been explicitly used to determine who would be a drain on society within the eyes of ruling America. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. As long as the public charge rule has been in effect since the late 1800s, there have also been almost as long the words at the base of the Statue of Liberty that read, give us your tired, your poor. You were implementing a public charge rule for the first time. Is that sentiment, give us your tired, your poor, still operative? in the United States, or should those words come down? Should the plaque come down off the Statue of Liberty? Well, I, I'm certainly uh, not prepared to take anything down off the Statue of Liberty. Um, we we, uh, we have a, a long history of being one of the most welcoming nations in the world. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have Hidetaka Hirata, who is an assistant professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Wasada University. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ian. Um, thank you for inviting me to this podcast, and um, it's a great honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. So actually, this is actually a really special episode. Yes, um, yeah, I'm currently based in Japan, and um, in the morning, or you're in the evening. Yeah, we had to make this work out. It's 9 p.m. my time, so it's nighttime, and you're just starting your day. It's around, what, 10 a.m. over yeah, there? Yeah, yes. Yeah, we're, we're we're time traveling over yeah. here, <laughs> officially global. So uh, thank you. It's, it's a quite an honor to have you on. So today, the conversation uh, we're we're talking about is public charge, right? In recent news, the White House administration came up with new regulations that would dramatically expand the government's definition of what public charge is, right? Mm-hmm. And if enacted, people who are going through the legal green card process and they have, let's say, mortgage loans, student loans, healthcare assistance, or taken any sort of food stamps, any sort of government subsidies, uh, that would uh, potentially count against them during this application process, right? And pro- proponents are saying that if enacted, this would greatly increase the chances of denials for lower income immigrants. And it would actually you know, improve the chances for those who are middle class or upper class. So the conversation is uh, the land of opportunity. A lot of people are saying this is not what the country is founded upon. However, uh, in a historical perspective, it might be uh, something different. So we're here to talk about the origins of public charge, which you happen to be an expert in. <laughs> I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So first, uh, tell me a little bit about your, your field of study and, and background. Sure. Yeah. I'm a historian of American immigration by training, and obviously, and, and I, I specialize in the history of 
American immigration law and policy, as well as um, anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, something called uh, nativism in, in, in U.S. history. And, you know, I, I, I recently published, actually two years ago, published a book on the, uh, the origins of U.S. immigration policy, especially deportation policy. And I focused on how the public charge clause uh, in the 19th century kind of helped lay uh, the, the foundation of uh, modern day U.S. immigration policy. Okay. Okay. That's great. So I guess let's start on the basic level. What is the current definition of public charge? Um, the current definition of public charge, if you use public benefits, including non-cash assistance, it will be considered a public charge. Uh, uh, in other words, if you use social benefits like uh, food stamps, public housing, and uh, Medicaid, that mm-hmm. would count against you, you know, if you use it, um, or, 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 or if, if your family used it, the government would consider consider you a public charge. Okay. So could you tell us how this definition changed over the years, or what was the first instance of uh, a rule like this uh, coming into place? Sure. Um, it, it, there, there's a history of, of this whole idea of public charge, and it's actually longer than most people think. Um, I'll try to to be very quick here, but um, um <laughs> sure, we we have time. But yeah, the very sure. very origin of the whole idea, the public charge, kind of dates back to uh, dated back to England, seventeenth uh, century England. It's it was part of the English pro law. You know, pro law is is a set of uh, regulations that uh, that control the movement of the poor, and and this kind of pro law had provisions for, for example, uh, restricting. The movement of poor people and uh, banishing transient poor people uh, from the community, and, and and this kind of poor law was first introduced to America during the colonial time, but by the English settlers, and then eventually hmm. uh, in the nineteenth century, when the uh, large number of Irish immigrants came to the U.S., the old right. poor law kind of developed into uh, state immigration laws, and back right. then. The definition was quite straightforward. That is, um, mm-hmm. if you entered public charitable institution like poor house or armist house or hospital, that would that would make the person a public charge. Um, in other words, um, if if you became entirely dependent on public assistance, government assistance for your basic subsistence, like a uh, food and shelter. Mm. That's you know right. that that would make a public charge. So that and this is a key point. Public charge meant a kind of total dependence on our governmental relief. And this this definition essentially remained the same for uh, for a long time until very recently. But now, if you use non-cash assistance, even if you're not entirely dependent on you know relief, you could mm-hmm. still become a public charge. So. Uh, right. That's the biggest change. Right, right. So uh, actually, kind of going back a little bit, uh, I was just thinking about the, the origins actually in England. So were they excluding people who were already residents living in England or they were uh, people who were traveling from outside and migrating to England? Um, both actually. Um for a law operated on the basis of town, like a like a small communities. Town or small mm-hmm. community was kind of basic 
administrative unit. This was the situation remained the same when the law was ported into America. So, for example, um, people in Boston considered uh, New Yorkers as outsiders, and people hmm. in Boston right. considered um, people coming from Ireland as equally outsiders. So, the right. pro law basically allowed uh, Bostonians, for example, to to banish. New Yorkers and Irish people who became very destitute in in Boston as outsiders. Right. So uh, what you're saying, this first formed as state legislature? The original law targeted destitute people regardless of nationality. But eventually, eventually this pro-law became immigration law uh, targeted, targeted against non-citizens, like foreigners coming from abroad, uh, coming from outside of the U.S. Uh, in the so, so who was first targeted during this period in America? Uh, as, as, as targets of immigration law, uh, the first, f- first targets were the Irish who came to the U.S. mostly mm-hmm. in the mid-19th century, like 1840s and 50s. Okay, okay. Uh, like why were they particularly targeted and considered undesirable at that time right what was the fears of the nativists um yeah so under irish nativism in the mid-19th century uh consisted of several components in our context here the big one is economic Hmm. you know the irish people basically fled uh their homeland because of famine you know the the kind of famous potato famine right which uh, uh significantly impoverished irish population Compared to the other immigrants, the Irish immigrants were uh, exceptionally poor and impoverished and kind of, you know, wretched. So uh, many of them uh, entered uh, public institutions, public charitable institutions, such as armist houses and mental uh, illness institutions. So um, the mm-hmm. Irish were kind of considered economic financial burdens on U.S society you know the na- natives actually called irish paupers uh leeches upon american taxpayers you know which kind of foreshadows mm-hmm. right uh present day nativist language mm-hmm. these these right. immigrants were you know leeches on american taxpayers um right but but at the same time you know hostile uh, anti-irish sentiment um had other dimensions uh, uh such as religious and cultural mm-hmm. many of the irish were catholics and many of Americans mm. back then were Protestants. Protestants right. felt that Catholic people were uh, lazy and docile people. You know, uh, you know, Protestants felt that Catholics were kind of slaves of the Pope. You know, in, in Rome, mm. Catholics didn't have independent minds, according to the Protestants. So mm. there, so here's a link between religion and economics. Mm. Protestant nativists felt that. Irish were poor, many of the Irish were paupers, in part because they were Catholics. You know, they were lazy people, mm. people. They, they, don't, they, they were lacking good working ethic, right? Um, mm. And then finally... Yeah, the Protestant ethic, right? Exactly. And uh, finally, there is a cultural kind of, you know, ethnic components. Uh, many of the Americans in the 19th century were of Anglo origin, Anglo descent. And from their perspective, you know, Irish, you know, Celtic people, were inferior people, inferior lazy people. So um, Anglo nativists felt that Irish people's religion and ethnicity kind of predetermined the dependency of the uh, 
Irish immigrants. So, you know, you can religious, you know, ethnic, cultural concentrations of these things kind of converge. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, culture, difference in culture, difference in ethnicity and religion, those are three big pillars that divide, right. <laughs> it seems. And our history in America used that as a basis for division and uh, policy, right? I, I, I Yes. Um, and I think um, if I can add something here, um, you know, I think the involvement and uh, involvement of religious, I'm sorry, the uh, ethnic cultural prejudice in the economic native is a key. In the understanding of Protestant American nativists, you know, Irish people were not simply, Irish people were not poor simply because of misfortune. You know, they were poor because they were Irish, you know. By fact of who they exactly. are. Exactly. Right. So, there's yeah. this kind of you know, yeah. ethnicization of, of poverty here uh, in, in the understanding of, of Anglo-Nativists. Hmm. Right. Okay, and that was during the 1840s. Going from that time period, how did this initial exclusion help shape future immigration policy and, and law? Um, at the, at the the most basic level, uh, the state level immigration control, which I mentioned, um, eventually developed into federal immigration policy. During the 1880s, the state immigration law became a kind of model of the Immigration Act of 1882, uh, which was among the first national immigration legislation. And this Federal immigration law of 1882 prohibited the landing of paupers. Mid 19th century public charge provision kind of set the set the precedence for how official discretion was used in the practical operation of, of the law. Let me just explain this. Um, okay. So the law said the people likely to become a public charge could be excluded. This provision sounds more sounds trickier than it may sound. You know, the the, the question is obviously uh, how can you define like likelihood? How how can you you know determine people's likelihood to to become paupers? Mm. So likely was a kind of naturally very uh, vague adjective. So what happened is uh, you know in practice the public charge clause allowed examining officers to use a significant amount of discretion in deciding, you know, who was likely and who was not likely to become public charges. Right, right. Yeah. What was some of like the criteria that they use on this case by case basis? Exactly. So the result was mm -hmm. that, you know, inspecting officers own ethnic or racial prejudice pretty much, you know, influenced law enforcement. And in a mm -hmm. point in the mid-19th century, uh, the Irish ten tended to be judged more negatively than some other immigrant groups, such as Germans, for example. Right? Right, and, right. And this this aspect, you know, the, the centrality of discretion continued after the public charge clause was became part of U.S. immigration policy. You know, later, the targets of this policy, uh, the provisions uh, were Asians and Mexicans. Right. And uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Yeah, after that, yes. Right. Chinese Exclusion Act only targeted the Chinese, but other right. Asians 
such as uh, Japanese and Indians, they were covered right. by uh, general immigration legislation, including its public charge clause. Yeah. Quick example, uh, just for your reference. So during the, during mm-hmm. the Great Depression, you know, during the 1930s, many immigrants lost their jobs and many immigrants requested public relief, Europeans and Mexicans alike. Um, mm. Europeans uh, were viewed as deserving charity recipients. Um, who happened to be destitute because of some unfortunate misfortune, you know, beyond their control. So, so they were mm-hmm. kind of, you know, considered members of U.S. society. But then Mexicans who see, sought public relief were stigmatized as lazy welfare abusers and burden on American society rather than members of it. So they were deported under the public charge clause. Right, but they're in this living under the same conditions as their European counterparts. Yeah, yeah. But the the treatment was vastly different. Vastly different, you know, and it's an indication of how the U.S. considered European European immigrants uh, uh, members uh, or future members of U.S. society, whereas you know the government considered Mexicans as kind of permanent outsiders. Yeah. <sighs> right. Right. So having that basic historical understanding of starting at a state level, mm-hmm. whether it was Massachusetts or New York, getting an influx of people who were you know, lower income and thought to be a drag on society, not just because of you know their current position in life, but by way of who they are culturally and religious-wise that was used against them. And that slowly pushed to more federal immigration policy of exclusion, mm-hmm. right? And now we see uh, today whether, well, we're not sure how things were unfold, but uh, do you see any parallels, um, any parallels that you find from the motivations of public charge during the 19th century uh, that could link to today's recent iteration? Well, you know, there are many parallels. You know, the the most obvious one is notion that undesirable immigrants were burdens on U.S. society. You know, in the 19th century, uh, Irish, as, as I said, you know, Irish were leeches, considered leeches upon American taxpayers. And then today, and this, this logic completely ignores the economic contributions that uh, these immigrants make, made and make, right, uh, right to, to U.S. society. And then uh, at the center of this argument, both now and then, there's a sense that immigrants were and are, you know, uh, undermining U.S. society, undermining the fabric of U.S. society economically, culturally. Correct. Culturally. Yeah. Yeah. And not being able to assimilate to American culture and by not assimilating uh, creates divisions culturally within the nation. Taking from your research is good for our listeners to understand, uh, you know, the foundations of a lot of policies, even though it's 2019, you know, these ideas, the ideas pass along the DNA, the thread mm-hmm. of these ideas are, uh, you know, a century, two centuries years old. And, you know, the fact that we're inheriting 
these these ideas. It's good to know our history so we can know and adapt to it and decide for ourselves how we all want to move forward. Is this the right way to move forward? Let's look in the past. How was it handled at that point? For what reasons? Do they have legitimate reasons for uh, such policies or is it more visceral and emotional reasons? And that's something that we all should come to terms with and, and figure out for ourselves. But I love sitting down with people like you who actually sit down and do the hard studies and the, the hard work to sort of discover and decipher it all for us. And it's, it's just my pleasure to have someone like you on yeah. to, to break it down for us. And uh, yeah, and it was a good pleasure for me. You know, uh, I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to share my research and findings. Tremendous honor. For more content and immigration updates, please follow us at EIGlaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG Nerds Podcast to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Now, if I would happen to make a way out to Tokyo, right? Okay, I'm assuming I have a friend out here now. Yes. Uh, we could do it exclusive. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Come. Visit. <laughs> you You show me around. You show me around. Of course. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll be happy to do it. Yes. I look forward. <laughs> Sounds great.